Regenerative agriculture. It's a phrase we're hearing more and more in food discussions, but it's never been entirely clear to me what it means. I think if you ask 10 people about regenerative agriculture, you might get 12 different definitions. I'm trying to understand better what it means to people who are actually doing it. And this is my first of what I hope will be several conversations. My name is Mike von Masso, and this is the Food Focus Podcast. Brian Alexander is a grass farmer in Kansas. He custom grazes cattle and is growing his own herd. He calls himself a sunlight salesman. We had a conversation on his philosophy and his approach to grass farming and grazing. I think you'll find it interesting. Brian, I'm, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I appreciate you taking the time to, to join me here and, and talk a little bit about what you're doing. Uh, before we get started, uh, why don't you take a minute and tell me about your operation. Before we talk about what you're doing, tell me where you're doing it. <laughs> All right. Well, first off, thanks, Mike, for uh, having me here. It's it's a pleasure and an honor to be, uh, be on your podcast. I am located in South Central Kansas, USA. Um, we get about 20 to 21 inches or 20 to 22 inches of rainfall in a normal average year. Normal is a setting on a dryer and average is just kind of a bunch of made up numbers. Uh, <laughs> no one gets an average, right? <laughs> right. You know, it's, it, it's, it's never the same. I mean, 20 inches of rain this year will be totally different than the same 20 inches of rain next year, just because, you know, a little bit of difference in sunshine, a little bit of difference in temperature and timing of rain matter. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm part owner and operator of a 7,000 acre cattle ranch um, down here in South Central Kansas. Uh, primarily, I do custom grazing, and I've got a herd of about 80 of my own cows that uh, I'm working on messing with some genetics and trying to get a small, small forage efficient grass fed cow. Okay. So, so one of the things that intrigued me, and uh, in in in. Uh, after I was introduced to you, one of the things that intrigued me is that you don't, I mean, you call yourself a rancher, but you don't call yourself a cattle producer. You say you use cattle to manage your land resource. Is that is that an accurate reflection? Yeah. And, you know, labels have a place in this world for what they are. And, you know, there's some labels that people willingly accept, and there's some labels that are pretty recognizable. And yeah, I'm a rancher, then that's kind of like the simplest way you can describe it. But what I really do is I'm a carbon sequestration technician. I'm a used sunlight salesman. Caring for the soil is caring for the soil and seeing the soil thrive and grow healthy plants and healthy grass grows healthy cows, grows good cows. Uh, and essentially, I mean, I like I like that used sunlight salesman, uh, but you're also harvesting your crop with something other than a swather and a combine. You're using cows. Right. And my crop is is one of the lowest cost crops there is. It's native grass. You know, and I'm just using that four inch wide mower on the front end of a cow to go pick it out of the ground. So you. You are doing things differently than many ranchers. Why are you doing things differently? Because I don't know any better. <laughs> uh, I, I kind of grew up uh, as I grew up as dad was developing and, and getting into this rotation grazing system and, and this idea. 
So I've been around rotation grazing and you know the holistic management principles and and hearing about biological cycling and water cycling and mineral cycling and nutrient cycling. I've been hearing that stuff for you know thirty plus years because my dad's been talking about it. So to me, using things like chemicals, like to go do chemical brush control. Yep, I've been there, done that, tried it. Doesn't work. Like it's a short-term Band-Aid, but they come back worse because you kill all the other good stuff there. But what I'm seeing is, you know, there's places where I graze at high densities with my cattle. I move often. The ranch is, is very well watered and subdivided and broken up. So I'm moving my cows every, you know, every couple of days to a fresh pasture and that getting herd effect and they're getting good grass and staying on a high plane of nutrition. So that's that, so that's interesting, and and you know I think in agriculture generally, uh, and and now more and more in ranching, we're talking about this here in Canada. A and W, big quick service restaurant chain, has gone entirely to grass fed beef for their uh, for their entire beef program, and they have advertising on TV where they have farmers holding. Handfuls of soy. Like, who would have imagined a hamburger restaurant with TV commercials with 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 soil in them? So we, it's clearly we're we're talking about it more. We're thinking about it more. But it is to a significant degree a paradigm shift, particularly in ranching. For the longest time, you know, we view it as an extractive enterprise. You know, it'll always be there. Grass will always come back. Well. If you continuously overgraze a pasture, there'll be parts of it where they never leave and there'll be parts of it where they never go. You know, you have to, you kind of have to force them to use a pasture effectively and not overgraze it, which is going back and taking that second bite. It, it, I'm intrigued because, because it is, I think you're underselling yourself a little bit in, 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 in what you're doing differently and how you're thinking about it. We're seeing more and more people sort of more doing a better job, sort of quote unquote, better job of rotational grazing, thinking about it more, thinking about the, 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 the health of that grass, thinking about the health of the soil underneath that grass and thinking about, well, that grass is going to sustain me for next year and the year after and the year after. And I need to make, make sure that it can do that. And so uh, do you think that, that part of Part of the reason you think about it differently is that uh, you are a custom grazer, so you really are selling grass, uh, and and not although you're now you have some of your own cattle, but you really are selling grass and grasslands management because uh, you're selling feed essentially to these to these uh, custom grazers. Or or what brought you to where you are today, doing it this way? Well, like I said, you know, I I just don't know any better, and I kind of kind of grew up as the system was evolving, and as I've taken over, <clears throat> let's see, it was about uh, 15 years ago I moved back here, and I started pretty much taking over a lot of things 10 years ago, and the last five years I've been making all the decisions, and what's really kicked me down this path is watching, you know, watching what happens to some of these areas when you do get the cows on them for a day and you just smash them in there real tight and see what happens with their herd effect and their hooves. I mean, 
I'm not doing any really high-density grazing this year, taking a breather, seeing some of the results, making some observations. And, you know, it, it's kind of on my mind because I answered some of these questions a little bit earlier today uh, on social media about how many acres a cow. Well, how many acres a cow? You know, okay, I say I had a, I had a group of cows that, about four acres a cow for the whole growing season. You know, they're pretty tight. You know, that's good utilization. This year, I'm floating between eight and 10 acres a cow, depending on which herd we're talking about. And depending on your perspective, that's either, that's either, wow, that's, a, wow, eight acres, that's huge. How do they need that much? And like, oh, you need eight acres? Wow, we need 200 for a cow. So, you know, it, it, the perspective across that varies so wildly, right? So we got to kind of keep keep a frame of reference in. Yep. You know? and, and, well, and it's true. It, it, it's, it's as soon as we, I mean, you talked about averages and averages, nothing is average. But uh, but the, the truth is, too, that there is so much variability in cattle, in land, in season and you know uh, that that a ranch that that ha can do this stocking density will be completely different from another one and time of year will make a difference all of those things i think that uh, make a difference so in the end it gets back to uh, the point i made uh, is that you have to adapt you that you're a manager you're managing the asset you look at what uh, what grass is producing this year, you're learning, you're adjusting, and you're saying what works best for this situation, for these cattle in this year, uh, and rather than saying, I am this many acres per cow, that's the way I do it, and I'm going to do it come hell or high water. Right. And, you know, what I found is the smaller I make my paddocks, the more often I move my cows, the better the land looks long term, and the better the animals perform. You know, so you take that to the logical extreme. Only give them enough grass for what they're going to eat for the day. Mm -hmm. And then move them off of it and let them have another piece. That's pretty labor intensive. That's that's kind of why we got away from it. But I, the best grass I've got is the pasture that I strip grazed two years in a row. And I, I've let rest since uh, since October. So do you graze year round? It's, uh, those of us here in the north, we have hard winters and, and, and we can't. Can you graze year round? I can. Um, we had, like everybody else, you know, the big polar vortex back in February. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. It was rough. Mm -hmm. um, and my head count is a little bit lower than it was before then. You know, not ashamed to say that because... I know most of my neighbors lost livestock as well. So yeah. that was kind of like a once in 10 year event. Um, most years, cattle are fine outside all winter long, no problem. You know, they, they can handle the cold. And if they can't handle the cold, you know, you probably shouldn't have that animal here anyway. It's not adapted to the environment. But, uh, you know, that's a whole, you know, that's a whole different discussion. So, you know, part of my theory is I try to, I challenge my cows. I pushed them a little bit hard over the winter. Um, but yeah, we stayed on pasture and the only time I fed any hay, uh, we had a couple little snows in October right after I weaned some of the calves off and I felt bad for them. So I hauled them a bale of hay. Um, and then I didn't haul anymore until February and we had that really bad cold snap. So what that was like here, 
we had basically a half inch of ice on the north side of everything. Yeah. So the tall stockpiled grass that I left that was two, three feet tall, those stems and that old leaf matter, those old leaves, they caught all that stuff. And that left the south side bare and open and the cows could still get down there to the base of the plants and still get a lot of good dry matter in there without having to fight through snow and ice. I even, Mike, Mike I even went out after that, after that ice, I went out and I rolled out three bales. So a bale is 40, is enough feed for 40 cows for a day. Okay. Yeah. I rolled out three bales for my 80 cows. Figured, have enough food for a day. They didn't touch it. They didn't touch it at all. They stayed out patrolling the pasture and eating grass that they could find underneath the, underneath the ice. Then when it snowed, like 10 days after 10 days of that crap, when it finally snowed and snowed enough to cover everything up, I felt really bad for him. So I, I hauled a bunch of hay. I even hauled out two bales of alfalfa. And they freaking ignored the alfalfa. Really? <laughs> like, it was it was 10 days later and the sun was out shining. Everything had melted and there was, you know, it was end of February. And they finally found the alfalfa bale and it started to go eat on it. The second one I rolled out, it's kind of ridiculous. I do also have to feed a lot of supplement protein in the winter time because my forage is, is just almost devoid of protein in the winter. Okay. I've got about a three month period where, where, where I've just got to put protein out and that's all there is to it because there's just, we don't have the climate and we don't have the plants to have any cool season protein during that time of year. And, 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 and you're using native grass, grassland, right? You're not seeding this pasture at all. That's correct. Uh, the entire ranch, I mean, other than some bits and bobs here, um, like I don't own a tractor. I don't have a planter. I don't have a disc. I don't have a chisel ripper. I don't have a plow. I don't have any of that stuff. I also don't have a giant, giant ass fuel bill. But I've had to get good at managing and learning how the native grass is every year. Because like, like we said earlier, it is not the same every year. Yeah, like it, it is like the most least uniform thing on earth. The most one of the most complex, diverse ecosystems is the grasslands biome. You, you, I mean, you, you have you have uh, some sort of equipment. You're hauling, you're hauling fencing around, or or you're at least you are using mo mobile fencing to 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 for small paddocks, or 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 do you have all that fencing and you're just moving them between, or or how are you managing that? So we're primarily like I would call it t permanently temporary fence. It's really cheap to build. I think uh, most of it I've got built for under fourteen cents a foot. It's just a it's like a real small diameter cable, galvanized steel cable, and fiberglass fence post. So that's my primary fence infrastructure, and I do have a bunch of uh, poly wire on geared reels and bat latches and and ring top posts for when we're doing high frequency moves because that cable fence and those fiberglass posts, they're not necessarily ideal. Um, they're not the most labor efficient way to, to get that strip grazing done. It's, it takes a lot more labor to roll up and lay out that cable than it does a reel of poly wire. So that's, yeah. that's why we do it. So I've made quite a few adjustments over the last two years you know, moving fences, putting in more fences and, and redesigning pad redesigning the paddock systems that dad had so I can get across them in less than a half a mile with a reel of poly wire. Okay. 
So, you know, I've got some of these paddocks that are, you know, 150 acres and they're going to be long and skinny. Well, you know, then you got to have a lane back to water or they're going to back graze, you know. So there's a sacrifice in everything. But uh, you also asked how I get around. I have a John, currently I have a John Deere side by side and it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty decent unit. There's some things I'm not happy with and there's some things about it that I like. So, (laughs) but it's, uh, that's always the case. Yeah. It's fuel efficient. It's, it's easy on fuel. I can get around, get around almost anywhere I need to on the ranch. Keeps the dust, you know, I can roll the windows up, turn the AC on, keep the dust off of me. I just can't go real fast. Okay. Why have you chosen to, to, to ranch this way? You know, it's, it's, it's different than a lot of people. Uh, what, what, what motivated you to take this approach? This sort of, I mean, some would call it regenerative or uh, I, I, maybe it's grass focused or, or whatever you call it. What, what, what brought you here? You know, like I said earlier, you know, I, I've kind of been on this path, but it didn't have a name 10 years ago. Yeah. Like, even five years ago, everybody was still talking about sustainable, sustainable, sustainable. And it was about five or six years ago, I kind of had the thought, like, we can't sustain this. This is this is so screwed up. We can't sustain this. We have to do something better. We have to regenerate. And I think that's about the time that, you know, a lot of other people started using the term. Not gonna claim, not gonna claim I invented it by any means at all. You know, we just kind of all you know, there was a community that just kind of centered on that as the new acceptable term because sustainable once we understood sustainable that that's not good like we don't want to just sustain the current screwed up state that we're in right we want to make it better yeah i I get exactly what you're what you're saying and and you have to make it appealing to others because you're you you are selling grass as a custom grazer you're selling grass to other people uh and and what brings other people to your farm or is it is it proximity is it that the way you're doing things is it well little column a little column b to be honest yeah. with you so when i got started when i got started dad handed over his contacts to me and i continued those relationships one of them for another two years and one of them for another year and you know then i started to make my own relationships you know out, out here the cattle business is I mean, it, it kind of is built on long-term relationships. Yeah, there's a good old boy network, um, and there's a lot of things that are just just simply based on reputation. Yep. And that's just the way it is. That's the way we have to do business out here because, you know, I'll do business with somebody 200 miles away based on reputation only. You know, I'll do I'll do a lot of business based on a handshake with a man that I trust. Mm-hmm. It just has to be that way. So, who I do business with. Um, Right now, I have I have two two clients on me right now, and uh, one of them has two two different herds, and then the other one, we've actually gone partners. We've commingled our cattle, and we're running our cattle together. We kind of have a common goal that we're going to be working towards and breeding towards. So, the guy that I'm commingled with, our mothers were friends. Yeah, <laughs> he he's just a, he's just a few years younger than me, um, and we've known each other our whole lives. So, you know, we've met, and then my other na- <laughs> then my other partner, and I, we've been doing business together now for uh, for thirteen years. Our fathers did business and ran cattle together back in the nineties. So we've met. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's also he 
and he also runs the ranch north of me. Yeah. So he runs he runs like a little over ten thousand acres, and he's got about twelve hundred of his own cows that he runs. And I'm kind of like surge capacity, or if he gets you know a good opportunity and calls me, he's like, "Hey, I need grass for you know two hundred of these for six months. What you got?" I'm like, "Cool, we can make some money." So yeah. we. We've made a lot of money over the years, and it's it's a great uh, relationship, and I really appreciate having having him as a friend, a neighbor, and a business partner. One, yeah, I was telling you in, in our in, in our introduction, uh, Brian, that you know uh, we have a quick service restaurant here in Canada that is that is you know differentiating on grass fed beef and featuring their produce their their ranchers in their commercials we we you know we're seeing cattle producers uh talking about grass talking about managing grass in very much the same way that 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 you're doing it and they're differentiating on that they're they're extracting a premium on that are you are you differentiating your cattle as being raised in a you know in a regenerative system and and do you think that that has it either does now or has the opportunity in the long run to to improve revenues for you? Oh, I, I definitely think it does. But the hitch in that, Mike, is we got to cut out the middleman. That that's where all the that's where all the producer share of the beef dollars going is to all the middlemen. I don't really want to get off and yelling about the Packers and how bad we're all getting screwed right now in the cattle business because that's you know. That's a whole nother show, that's, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's a different discussion, yeah. You know, participation in the current system doesn't make you complicit in its creation. But it also doesn't mean that you can't make a better system. You can't build a better pathway to your customer. So finding that space where we can exist and continue to use the current system while rapidly changing to a more customer producer connected experience i think that's the direction we need to go well and 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 if you have that story to tell that makes it easier if you say this is why we're different this is what we're doing better uh, and 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 what we need to be what, what we need to be thinking about uh, then you, you have a value proposition to that consumer. To me, to me, there are two elements of that change that you're describing, and we don't want to go down that rabbit hole uh, dramatically in the, in this episode. But but you, if 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 you're trying to get away from a commodity experience, you need to do something different that creates value differently for the customer. Plus, then have the framework, the 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 value chain that allows you to keep your cattle separate and 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 extract that value. And and this isn't unique to the to the beef business. We've in a commodity market, we put everything through that same funnel. And if there's any differentiation, it happens after that animal is hanging on a hook in a packing plant, and they say, "I can do this" or "I can do that." Uh, and it's mostly on size and marbling and grade and things like that. What we what we're seeing increasingly now is that sort of differentiation on production practice. On you know, I have a friend who runs a small packing plant who tenderness tests every single carcass that comes into his uh, into his operation, and he can he can tell you if you want this tenderness rating and this and this and this, I'll get it for you. And he'll sort for that. But 
in order to do that, each each producer who grows cattle for him knows what each carcass does. Gets a tenderness grade. Uh, they know what the they know what the feeding protocol is, and and they can start selecting cattle for what now. In, in all of that, you still have to create the value uh, that allows you to to share more value, but it it will require a change in structure of the system. Yeah, and you know, getting that information about eater satisfaction and eating experience back to the producer. I mean, I don't have to tell you, but that is a three-year pipeline from the yeah. time I make a breeding decision. It's three years before that calf is going to end up on a plate somewhere. Yeah. So I've got to do everything right for three years just to hear, oh, yeah, it was a little tough. We've got to do, we've got to, we got to do a better job of, of connecting the producer to the consumer. Small craft butcher shops, slaughterhouses like that, where the guy running it, you know, can look at it test it a little bit and say, this is going to be a good one and knows how to get the most value out of that for the producer. That's what we need more of. Like we don't need another 6,000 head a day, mega Holcomb plant built by Tyson, right? That's not what we need. We need 6,000 10 head per day plants. That's what we need. Or something somewhere in between. But I agree with you. My last question, Brian, and then I'll give you a, a chance to say, Mike, you, uh, you should have asked me this and you didn't. But uh, one thing that we're hearing increasingly, and in fact, my last conversation, my last podcast episode was talking about the opportunity for carbon trading for people who are doing things like you are doing to not only get credit for the cattle you're getting out, but to, to get credit for the sequestration that you're doing. Do you, do you see that coming? Do you think that's valid? And, and is it something that's interesting? I think it's very interesting. And I think it is coming way faster than most people realize. The ch there's a lot of challenges in that, right? You know, yeah, like, no, no, no doubt. Cut, you know, keeping the middleman from, you know, getting his hands too, too dirty in that stream of money. You know, making sure the benefit of that flows back to the producer, the landowner that's actually doing the work. The thing that, the thing that really bothers me is you can have a commodity farmer that's been deep tilling and had a two crop oscillation and been just pouring the pesticides, herbicides, and all the fertilizers on it, and has, you know, three feet of just absolutely dead dirt. Can't call it soil, because it's dirt. I mean, soil yeah. is alive. Dirt is not. They got three feet of this dead dirt that every year, they go out and they put a seed, and then they put everything the seed needs to grow, they haul that out there with a tractor, right? Yeah, yeah those guys need to get a little bit, okay. If they change and they follow the principles and they start building their carbon, they start building their soil organic matter and they stop the runoff, they keep their soil covered up, they put livestock back on the land, okay? Are, they, are, are all the commodity crop farmers that have been supported for so long by crop subsidies and insurance, are they the ones that are going to get all this handout and the cattle producers, the ranchers, the good stewards of the land that have been practicing good stewardship? and managing our grasslands 
are, are we even going to get recognized in that? Well, yeah, that's a that's a great question, and I I mean we we had this like I said my last episode we had this exact discussion is are the first movers going to be penalized uh, because they won't be able to show an increase in sequestration, right? I mean you've been storing carbon for what you said you've been home for fifteen years and making decisions for ten. Uh, and and if you have to show it as an incremental change to trade it, uh, you'll you'll. So there are lots of there are lots of questions yet, but it, it'll be interesting to see it coming. And and I think that it will it will in the long run mean more people will start doing what you're doing because because they'll not only get the value from the grass they're harvesting, either. Uh, as cattle or 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 uh, as custom grazing they'll be able to sell the, uh, the the carbon credits as well that also depends i mean in canada here we now have a, a carbon tax and so farmers are paying attention and they're getting charged for the carbon they're creating uh, and so that might increase the motivation for uh, for finding ways to get carbon credits. So that has to happen too. We've got a ways to go, but clearly you're thinking about it. I think at the beginning, you called yourself a carbon sequestration technician. You, yes. you need to get paid for doing that too, don't you? We're working on it. We're actually, uh, we're working on it. So let's just say your soil can sequester a half of a ton of carbon per acre per year. Okay. I mean, it, in all honestly, that's not that much. Okay. Yeah. Right now, they're floating around, you know, there's projects that are getting funded, like they're going down to Brazil and buying a rainforest that wasn't going to be cut down anyway. They're buying a rainforest and they're saying, we sequestered this many acres of wood, like, bullshit. Like, it wasn't going anywhere anyway. You didn't add to a carbon pool. You're not adding to a carbon pool actively. You're just saying, oh, these are my offsets. These trees won't be cut. But unless they were going to be cut to begin with, it's it's like fake. Yep. So you know we have to be we have to work on the drawdown, right? Currently, the U.S. carbon market is trading around twenty bucks a ton. Okay. So I I ain't that good at math, but I mean twenty dollars a ton a year, and I can store an acre a year, and I got like seven thousand acres. Huh. I could figure that out without a calculator. Yeah. Now here's the fun part, Mike. At the same time, I'm, I don't know what the current spot market is on carbon, but like the uh, the current offer in the U.S. is about twenty. On the euro market, it's trading at about fifty bucks a ton. And I remember back in February, February March timeframe, Bill Gates was bragging about that he paid that he didn't even know how much he paid for his 2020 offsets. It was between $600 and $1,200 per ton for his offsets. So do I think there's potential in a carbon market? Do I think there's a lot of, yes. My friend Hobbs Magaray kind of basically puts it pretty elegantly and he says that uh, if we were doing it right, cattle will be a byproduct, beef will be a byproduct of the carbon sequestration industry. Wow, that, that's interesting. That, and it, 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 you may not be wrong at, at carbon prices that are getting higher and higher. And part of the reason for the price difference is probably the cost of, of emitting carbon in Europe is probably higher than it is in the U.S. So, so, so that the offsets it all, are... It all depends on where that tax is applied. Yeah. Like, it all depends where in the supply chain that tax is applied. Like, 
maybe we should start looking at applying the carbon tax at the wellhead. I mean, if we had to supply, if we applied the carbon tax at the wellhead, everybody would pay it. Yeah. And everybody would have to pay their share. Single-use plastic would disappear overnight. I mean, you want to ban straws? You want to ban plastic bags? Carbon tax. Carbon tax at the wellhead. Yeah. And I know, and I know saying that is not going to make me popular with a lot of my friends in the oil and gas industry. I'm prepared to accept that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, change is coming. So, change Brian, coming. I mean, get on the bus or get left behind. That's all there yeah. is to it. Either accept it or you're going to go the way of... Um, I don't know, Kodak, are they even relevant anymore? I think they still exist, but they don't do much. <laughs> um, I mean, at one time, they were the biggest camera company in the world, a billion dollars in sales. Where are they yeah. now? Like Sears. Sears failed to adapt to the change. Where are they? Yeah. yeah, there's lots of examples. So, Brian, what should I have asked you? that I didn't ask you or, or what, what, what would you, what would you add uh, to, to people who are learning about regenerative agriculture, thinking about producing beef differently? What, what, what points would you make to them to wrap up? Oh gosh. I, I there's so much to unpack there, Mike. Um, can I plug my podcast? Yeah, oh, I was going to do that at the end. I, I, I was going to give you an opportunity uh, after this question to do that. So you can do it now if you want. Talk, talk about where they can find you. Well, that's, that's why I started my own podcast called Ranching Reboot, is to answer those questions about, you know, how can we start transitioning to a more regenerative system? You know, how are people doing it? And my target audience for that, is, and I think I'm doing a fairly decent job, is, uh, is you know, the millennial that's been stuck in COVID lockdown and is really starting to question their food supply and where their food's coming from and about their food security and wanting to get involved and, and take an active role in intentionally feeding themselves good food. So the podcast is called Ranching Reboot. We're on Apple. We're on Google. We're hosted on anchor.fm. You can find us on Spotify. Um, I think you can say, hey, Siri, play Ranching Reboot, or yell, Alexa, play Ranching Reboot. <laughs> not going to, sorry, not sorry, if you if it just started playing in the background for you. Good. And so uh, that, that's that's great. And, and I've listened to a, an, an episode or two, and I would also uh, concur that it's that, that it's worth, worth a listen. And I would agree that people are starting to think differently about food. And the last, the last point I'm going to make uh, is you said that there are people who are thinking about where their food's coming from and that they want to eat good food. And I think the definition of good food doesn't include just what we put into our body, that it's nutritious and healthy, but that they are also concerned with how that food is produced increasingly. And yeah. being able to tell that story and tell why you're doing it is becoming a profoundly important element of, uh, of the story that we have to tell people who eat. Ag as a whole has got some problems. We've got some environmental problems. But we've been really successful for the last 30 years of covering them up. You know, some of those some some of those practices are starting to come to light and consumers are really starting to question it. For a long time they were just taught, don't question it, don't question it, don't worry about it, it's safe, it's good, it's it's healthy, it's awesome. Well, you know, there's people that are wanting to go and see it. Okay. 
You can come out to the ranch. I'll show you where my cows live all the time. Show me, feedlots don't allow public tours, right? Because animal rights activists. Animal rights activists come out to my place, and I don't think they'd find a thing wrong. I mean, we'd probably end up having a good conversation. Drive one over to a feedlot, look, they'd go nuts. I'd go nuts. So, good. Well, that's uh, that's what I wanted to cover today, Brian. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I'm looking forward to having another one soon. Uh, we'll have to get back together and talk about. Uh, I, I think you and I have a lot of things that 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 we'd enjoy uh, that we'd enjoy chatting about. But uh, I'll I'll close it there and say thank you very much. Remind everyone to go look for Ranching Reboot uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and uh, Brian puts out an episode uh, approximately every Monday morning, uh, and uh, it, it's, it's definitely worth a listen. So thanks very much, Brian, and uh, have a great day. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's been an honor, and I look forward to great many more awesome conversations in the future. Perfect. That wraps up another episode of the Food Focus podcast. We very much appreciate you taking the time to listen. If you just discovered Food Focus, you can subscribe anywhere you get podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give us a review. It helps others find us. Before we go, I want to thank my producer, Zach, for his hard work in making each episode sound good and for his original music that helps us transition. He does the hard work and we get to have all of the fun. Thanks. Have a great day. 